The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with uh, the staff here, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my privilege to bring to you the scriptures this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 110, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 110. We are now in the fourth week of this series titled Authentic Worship, a study of the Psalms. And uh, this study is an attempt to help us look into the differing categories of worship in the life of God's people. Now each week uh, and each new psalm has given us, I think, a broader definition of worship. To think about worship, not just in terms of like a, a song that you sing or, or a praise that you offer up, but there are, are different categories and content and different things that we're thinking about in relationship to a life of worship before God. So for example, in week one, we took a look at Psalm 1, the opening of the Psalter. And we found out that worship is about how we live. There was that beautiful picture of a tree that is soaking up through the roots life from this stream which represents the word of God and it bears fruit in its season. That that's what the life of worship looks like. Attached to God, soaking up from God, bearing fruit for God. Then in week two, we looked at Psalm 32 which was a psalm of thanksgiving for forgiveness of sin, song, a song written by David. And we found out that worship is about giving and receiving. It's about giving thanks to God and receiving grace from God. Then in week three, we took a look at Psalm 88. That was last week. And we found out that worship is about honesty and vulnerability. It's about coming to God with who we really are, even if that's ugly, if it's unfiltered, even if it's filled with sorrow and with lament. And this week, in week four, we're going to take a look at Psalm 110, and we're going to find out that worship is also about finding our hope in the king and his kingdom. It is looking for and longing for a homeland, a city with foundations whose builder and whose maker is God. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare to go through the scriptures together? Father, uh, even in my own wrestling over this psalm in the last week, I recognize that there is a battle for our hearts and minds. And this psalm calls us to place our hope, to long for and to look for a kingdom that is eternal. To surrender to and live under the rule of a king who is presently ruling and reigning from heaven. And that is a different way to live. It's different than how we perceive the world. It is different than... The culture that we grow up in, it is, it is different on so many levels. And so, God, would your word shape our thinking? Renew our minds. Wash us with the water of the word and transform us so that we live under the truth of your word. 
We ask this, that you might be glorified through our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I'm not sure how many people in here are uh, Apple product people. In Apple products, you can keep track of music that you've downloaded or, or music that you've played, stuff that you've accrued over the course of a lifetime of using iTunes. And one of the marvels of, one of, the marvels of our age is that you, you no longer have to buy an album with 10 songs that you hate in order to get that one song that you actually really, truly love from an artist, right? Uh, and you don't have to sit by the radio station waiting for that one song to come on with your cassette recorder. For those of you who are younger than 40, a cassette was a small little thing. It had tape and you, you could record songs off the radio and you could make your own playlist for your girlfriend or whatever it, if you wanted to. If you just sat by the radio long enough, right? Um, you can actually just purchase individual songs or entire albums or, or you can do what I do, which is pay a subscription, right? So you give Apple $7.99 a month and then you can listen to any song that you want anytime that you want as long as it's in their Apple library. Now what's interesting about this is that you can sort your iTunes playlist or the music that you listen to in a variety of ways. You can do that with genre or alphabetically according to artist or, you know, any one of a number of ways. But you can also sort it, interestingly enough, uh, you can sort it by the songs that you've played the most throughout the course of your life. So if you look on your iTunes thing over off to the left, you can see this little sorting uh, you know, stack on, on, on the left-hand side of your iTunes library. And you can look at the songs that you have played the most, which is a really interesting exercise. You can kind of psychoanalyze yourself by taking a look at your song history and just kind of seeing like, okay, what, what am I drawn to? What is it that I come to again and again? Now, what I discovered about my playlist is that I have listened to an eclectic mix of worship, Christian rap about theology, 90s grunge, bluegrass, and apparently I have listened to the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack over and over and over again. Some Johnny Cash, a little Chris Stapleton, and in addition, uh, the, the thing that makes my list often is pure ambient audio, which is a, a regular in my playlist. It's just music without words. It, I use it when I study and when I read. So I'm, I'm not sure what that says about me. Maybe I'm a little confused in my origin. I'm not sure. But th that, there it is. There, there's me in a snapshot, right? There's my, you can see into my mind and what it's drawn to. But I wonder, when it comes to passages that contain worship in the Bible, what passages hit the most played lists for believers? Perhaps you might think of Psalm 23. A worshipful song about the Lord being our shepherd. Or Psalm 139, a very famous psalm. Or maybe it's not a psalm from the psalms. It's a, one of the songs of Reve Revelation, sung by the elders or the beasts around the living th throne of God. However, there is a psalm that makes the rotation more often than any other song among certain people. And that psalm 
is Psalm 110. And those people are Jesus, Peter, Paul, and the author of Hebrews. So what if we were to ask the question then, what is the most played psalm in God's playlist? You see, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. James Montgomery Boyce counted 27 direct quotations or indirect allusions to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm, which means it is a psalm written for, to, or about the king of Israel. However, it is also a messianic psalm. It has this secondary prophetic element to it as, as well. It speaks of the coming king, the Messiah, the one that God promised to send from the family of David. And all of the hopes of the nation of Israel are wrapped up in the person and work of this future Messiah. Now, that is hard for us to relate to. I just want to acknowledge that right off the bat. There are some cultural hurdles that we have to overcome in thinking about Jesus as Messiah, as King, and of the people that live under Jesus as a part of this thing called the kingdom. For instance, we come from a form of government that often doesn't think of kings and kingdoms. It is hard for the average Westerner, like myself, to understand life from the perspective of living under a king. Our closest analogy at hand is maybe something like the president. The difference, though, is that a king does not function in the same way that a president does. Living in a democracy is considered, in our present day, a superior form of government due to the fact that history has revealed that kings do not always act in the best interests of their people. They can be selfish. They can be tyrannical. And as a result of that, a, a democratic republic, such as the one we live in, seeks to sort of mitigate any one person from having too much power or authority. And as Westerners, we're somewhat averse to giving away absolute power. The American experiment is an attempt to build the kingdom with all the benefits of the kingdom, but we want to do that without a king. We don't want anybody at the top with power over us. So much of the borrowed biblical language that was used by our founding fathers are, are things that were taken from scriptures that were were an attempt to express the values that they wanted in a system or in a form of government. But they, in the end, didn't trust that to any one person to be in control of that. And so they, they tried to mitigate against the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of fallen kings. They wanted all the benefits of the kingdom without an actual king. And by default... We, as Westerners, and we in particular as Americans, are suspicious of giving absolute control of our lives 
to any one authority. So this psalm then stands in contrast to our cultural ethic because it says that there is a king and that his kingdom will supersede all kingdoms. It points us to a a very different form of government and a very different kind of king. It draws our attention to the hope of something better, something that is unspoiled by the sinfulness of humanity. Now, what makes this royal psalm interesting is that David, who is already the king of Israel, is the author of this psalm. And as we get into it, knowing this fact will help us to think through it in the same way that Jesus and the apostles in the early church did. And we're hopefully going to be able to see the hope that this psalm provides through their eyes and let it adjust our perspective as well. I heard a preacher say this last week, some psalms are mirrors that reflect our feelings back to us. But some psalms are windows that help us to peer into a different perspective of the world. I like that. Psalm 110 is one of those psalms that helps us to peer into a different perspective of the world around us. It is a different lens by which we see the hope of the anticipated kingdom of God. Psalm 110 is kind of like Cinderella's slipper, if you think about it. As we read through it, and you'll get this sense, as we read through it, you'll start to ask the question, well, who could this psalm be talking about? Who does this psalm actually fit? It draws our attention to hope. So let's read it, and then we'll work our way through it and try and see what the writers of the New Testament saw. Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, how many of you, as soon as you read through that, thought, oh, yeah, this is my go-to worship song right here. I mean, when I'm, it's going to make my playlist regularly. Now, immediately, we, we don't think of that. I, I hope, I pray, that by the time we're done here, you will see the glory of this psalm through a new lens and the glory of the hope of the coming kingdom. So, Psalm 110, then, is this royal psalm. Our, we've got this outline that I think will help us to think through this. So uh, the outline goes like this. The king and his, verses 1 and 2, source of authority. The king and his, verses 3 and 4, willing people. 
And the king and his, verses 5 through 7, awesome power. So the king and his source of authority, his willing people, and his awesome power. Looking at verses 1 and 2, we are confronted with something right off the bat in the very first verse. The Lord says unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As the psalm opens up, we're immediately grabbed by the first line. David is the author of this psalm. And as he begins to write this psalm, he starts off by speaking prophetically of a conversation that is happening between the Lord, so that first Lord, if you'll notice there, it's in all caps, all caps, whereas the second Lord has lowercase uh, letters in it. That is a way for the translators to indicate to us that that first Lord is the name of God. It is the name Yahweh. It's the mighty name of God. The second Lord there is Adonai, which means master, ruler, Lord, right? So here, as the psalm opens up, he starts off by speaking prophetically of a conversation between, that's happening between the Lord, Yahweh, and between a figure that David calls his Lord. Now, we know from the New Testament that this figure having a conversation with Yahweh is the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus, the Messiah, right here in the Psalms, having a conversation with his Father. And now this is something that, from, that people from David's time until the arrival of Jesus didn't really understand. The logic follows then for these readers that they, they are meant to ask, who is David honoring as being greater than himself? Who's David talking about here? If he, if he wrote the psalm, who is his Lord that he's referring to? That's not Yahweh. Now, Jesus capitalizes on this apparent ministry when being questioned in the final week of his life. Remember, there was this moment where these different religious leaders came and they were questioning Jesus. They were asking him questions about politics and questions about theology and they wanted to try and trap him and trick him. He answers all their questions. He passes their tests with flying colors. But then he flips the script and he says, now I have a question for you. This passage is found for us both in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. I'll, I'll read the Matthew 22 portion to you. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? So that word Christ, by the way, is the same word for Messiah. It means anointed. And so he's asking them about what their perspective is on the Jewish Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of David. And he said to them, Well, how is it then that David, in the Spirit calls him Lord. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, the, the scribes all say, that the Messiah is the son of David. But how can that be when David, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, calls him 
Lord. This is something that David would never do. He would never call one of his descendants Lord. What's going on there? Jesus is showing his opponents that their version of the Messiah, their understanding of the Messiah and of his kingdom is way too small. Whoever Messiah is, he is greater than David, and even David knew that. And they're dumbfounded. And as a result, they decided maybe it was not a great idea to ask Jesus any more questions. <laughs> Especially ones that they don't want to know the answers to. Now it's interesting to realize as this psalm opens up that David is being invited into the Trinitarian union of God through this vision that he's given. All three persons of the Godhead are working in cooperation here together. The Father is speaking to the Son. And the Holy Spirit is revealing this conversation to David. The Holy Spirit is revealing to David that a descendant of his will ultimately fulfill God's promise that was given to David in the Davidic covenant. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, you might remember the, the, the Davidic covenant that was found in first or, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that promise said in verses 12 through 13, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. it will be a descendant of you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his forever. Okay, so David has been shown by the Spirit that the one whose throne and reign is being described in the Davidic covenant will be a reign that is forever. And this one who will reign forever is given authority to reign forever by Yahweh. Now this is consistent with what Peter preached as well. He used Psalm 110 to preach the gospel for the very first time in Acts chapter 2. And on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, Peter quotes this psalm in reference, and he says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 36. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter pulls from Psalm 110 to proclaim the gospel after the resurrection, after the ascension, to the crowd of people that initially got saved and the church was started. 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus at this point. So how did Peter interpret this song? He saw that Yahweh was talking to Jesus about his ascension to the throne. 
This psalm is what is happening in real time for Peter. Remember, just moments before this, Peter had seen Jesus launch off of the Mount of Olives and ascend to the Father. He saw this reality being played out. And so he looks into Psalm 110 and he goes, that's what this is talking about. This is that moment. Jesus has taken his throne. This was a real-time interpretation of the Scriptures for Peter. Now, what is the content of this conversation that, that David is, is, is seeing unfold in the Trinity? Well, the Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The picture of sitting on the right hand comes from a cultural understanding of a couple of things. First of all, servants stood or bowed in the presence of royalty. Additionally, no one was allowed to sit higher than the king. He had the highest seat. Only people with positions of power were even granted to sit in the presence of the king. And the right hand of the king was reserved for the person that had the highest place of privilege, the one that would share his authority in the kingdom. It was the person with, with whom the king would share his authority or his rule. And the, ideas of, the idea of enemies being made a footstool was a common practice in the Middle East. Whenever a king conquered an enemy, he would take the opposing king, bring him into his court, make him kneel down, and he would place his foot on the neck of that king to show total domination over that enemy. There's a great example of this in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. So stringing together all of those pictures then, it creates this word picture for us. The Messiah, Jesus, is invited to sit. The work is done. He's not a servant. To take the authority given to him by Yahweh at the right hand. And to simply observe as the enemies of the Messiah are made a footstool, total domination and surrender of all enemies by the power of Yahweh. So this is what the Father is saying to Jesus the Son. And the Holy Spirit is revealing this to David. So then the question comes, okay, but like, what enemies is he talking about here? What enemies are being defeated? Well, we know, of course, that Satan and his minions, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, you should write that down, it's a good verse, that they are right now, in this moment, disarmed by the work of Jesus on the cross. And that they are being triumphed over in the gospel. We also know that sin was atoned for at the cross. So Satan and his minions and sin have been dealt with at the cross. But there is still not total defeat. Satan is still deceiving. People are still under the sway of the enemy. Sin is still rampant in the world. And even more than that, death still looks like it has the final word at this moment. So... 
We are still waiting for that time where, with finality, Christ puts his foot on the neck of his enemies and they are totally defeated. Now, according to the Apostle, the Apostle Paul, this is the future hope of God's people. Would you do me a favor? Would you turn over? Just keep, it, keep your ribbon here. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. I just want you to read this for yourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. This is the famous chapter on the resurrection. Uh, The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he says this. We're going to go verses 22 all the way through 28. And let's, let's pay attention to the phrasing. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it, said, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So, get the picture. Jesus is given authority from God the Father to put death to death. Jesus is the early harvest that proves that a later harvest is coming. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. His being raised from the dead is evidence that there is a later resurrection where death will totally be defeated at a later moment in history or in time. He's the first fruits. Then all those who belong to Christ will enjoy the same victory over death. And at that moment, at the second resurrection, if you will, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, sin will be vanquished from the earth, and this pretty much sums up the entire book of Revelation. Now watch what comes next. Now I want you to see, turning back now to Psalm 110, I want you to see something that's really important here. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So out of Zion, which is the mountain that Jerusalem and the temple sat upon in Israel, Yahweh says, start using your scepter, which is a symbol of Messiah's authority. Start using your scepter now. Don't just wait and rule when your enemies are all defeated. Begin your rule and reign now. Notice from verse 2, in the midst of your enemies. We'll put them under your feet at a later moment. But begin ruling and reigning right now. From the moment you ascend to the throne, begin your rule, begin your reign right now in the presence of your enemies. Did you hear that? 
There is presently the kingdom of God at work in the presence of the soon-to-be-defeated enemies. Jesus, at his ascension, has then inaugurated the kingdom of God and is waiting for that time when the whole of creation will be brought totally under his rule. Satan, sin, death, and all those who rebel against his authority will ultimately surrender to the authority of Jesus someday. And in the meantime, Jesus is already gathering his people and extending his rule, extending the the range of his affective will on the earth. Jesus the Messiah is reigning before the full victory is accomplished. Okay, how does that happen? What does this look like? Well, it gets pictured for us when we see the next few verses and the king and his willing people in verses 3 through 4. So let's read 3 through 4. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So here, David pictures the future people under the reign of Messiah as a mighty army in the presence of the enemies. Now that in itself is cool, but let's check out the details of how this army is described in these verses. Because it's so different than what we think about when we think about an army. First of all, they are a willing army. They are a willing army. It was common in the days in which this psalm was written for kings to hire mercenaries or to draft people into their armies to come and fight their battles. But that's not what's happening here. This is not a conscripted army. These folks are here by their own volition, by their own choice. They want to be there. They are the army of the willing. They are here on Team Messiah because that is what they want. It's what they desire to do. It's not an obligation that leads them to take part in the campaign of the Messiah. They trust his rule. They trust his leadership. And they trust it all before all the, ven- the enemies are vanquished. They believe in his mission and his purpose. And they're following him with their lives. Matter of fact, you could call that faith, couldn't you? Absolute trust in the leadership of King Jesus. Now, this picture on its own deserves an entire series. There is so much to it. It's pregnant with meaning. And we don't have the time for that at this moment. But I hope, as a church, we're going to continue to deepen our understanding of this reality, what it means to be the willing army of Jesus. For now, let's explore just one aspect of this picture. How does the unwilling sinner become the willing warrior? How does God amass such a group of people who who say, sign me up, I'll follow you, I'll go where you want me to do, I will will do what you want me to do. How How does he get that to happen? The answer, he changes their hearts. This is what the prophets like 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised that God would do in establishing the new covenant. They foresaw a time when God would make the unwilling willing. He would take out of the people a heart of stone. He would give them a heart of flesh. He would put his spirit in them. This is what Jesus describes all throughout the Gospels in his teaching. When he would describe how different members of his kingdom and how how different they really are from the religious systems of the world. They're not simply religious people. They're different fundamentally at the core of who they are. They are different in desire. These are people who do not simply avoid the outward forms of sin like adultery and lying or murder. Rather, their desires are directed by the change that has taken place in their hearts through regeneration, through being changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then takes up residence in the heart of the follower of Jesus through faith. And then the Holy Spirit begins to place the desires of God into the heart of the follower so that they want to do what Jesus, their king, would do. For them, it's no longer about avoiding lust or lying or murder. Rather, their hearts and the heart of Jesus has become united so that even lust is not entertained. Hatred is hated and has no place to take up residence in their hearts. Even their bodies, the way that they view their their physical bodies, they see them as as a means to offer sacrifice, priestly sacrifice to God. They they use their tongues to speak the truth in love and to declare praises for God. They use their hands in diligence to care for others and to be lifted up in prayer and in worship. They use their feet to carry with them the gospel of peace wherever they go. They are wholly surrendered to God willingly because from the heart they begin to live out the desires of God that have been placed in them. They are a holy army. Not only that, but they are a ministering army. They are a ministering army. Now, whenever you start to use analogies of the church as an army, it often immediately brings up images of the Crusades, of the great harm that has been done in the world through the church being militarized. But did you you catch the description of this army? They are arrayed in holy garments. That is, they are dressed up not in glistening armor, but in priestly attire. The entire army is an army of priests. And David goes on to use poetic language that describes them as being birthed at the dawn from the womb of the morning. And from David's perspective... Just like the morning dew that blankets the land, sort of glistening on the the meadow or on the hillside, this army of holy, glistening people arrayed in priestly garments are there to do the will of their king. 
They're just miraculously sort of there, and they're everywhere. They're full of strength and youthfulness. The idea here is that they're not some sort of ragtag group of war-torn warriors. These are priests and priestesses in their prime. They are youthful. They are ready for the conflict that, are, that is coming. They are ready to see their king finish what he has started. This is a, this is a very different type of army. Messiah here does not extend his rule and reign by brute force, but by fulfilling the role of the priesthood among his people. That's an incredible picture. That should blow all of our minds. What is the role of the priest? To reconcile the people separated from God back to God. To restore the lost and to example the heart of God to the people around them. The role of a priest was, a, was an office of compassion and mercy. The priest serves God and serves people. He is, he's who you went to if you were sick. The priest is the one who cared for the poor. Remember, you tithed to the temple. The, the, the priest then would take what was brought into the temple and use it to care for the poor. That was the way it worked. You went to him when you were in need. He cared for the widow and for the orphan. They were the ones who led the nation in the worship of God and the reverence for his name. So this army, the army of the Messiah, is a ministering army, not a conquering or militant army. They are different in nature, they're different in character, different in function. Can't you hear the words of Jesus in this picture? Remember in Mark 10? Remember the, the, the disciples are are having an argument about like, well, okay, well, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, I want to be on the right hand, and, and, and my brother over here, put him on your left hand. They were all about position and power and prominence. That, those are the things that they aspire to. And Jesus takes that moment to turn around and say to them these words in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, here's the thing God's ways are not our ways, they are higher. We cannot pull principles from the world and try to make the kingdom of God with them because the kingdom of God works opposite of the way that the world works. They, they are opposed to each other. In the kingdom of the world, it's all about ascending, getting power, having prominence, being in a position where you can exercise authority top down. In the kingdom of God, it is servant leadership. It is people who pray on bended knee for one another, who love passionately like Jesus loves, who serve and care for those that are wounded and broken and hurting. 
It is completely opposite of the kingdoms of this world. God's ways are not our ways. Our ways, they are higher. The kingdoms of earth produced by human thinking are mere shadows or distortions of the kingdom eternal. His kingdom operates differently than the ideas that humans come up with. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us today, you can't fit the value systems of this world with the value system of the kingdom. For them, it's about power, prestige, and position. For us, it's about serving, humility, and love out of a pure heart. Do you see the army now? Do you see them on the hillside, under the rule and reign of Messiah, dressed in priestly garments, being sent out into the world to demonstrate what life under his rule looks like. It's an incredible picture. Then let's take a look at what comes next. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Let's just admit all of this sounds super weird to us. What is that all about? There's something that's taking place here in verse 4 that would take more time than we actually have to really unpack. And for those of you that feel sad about that, I've got good news for you. The next book study that we're going to do as a church is through the book of Hebrews. And this person, Melchizedek, comes up in the book of Hebrews. A whole chapter, chapter 7, is dedicated to him. So we're going to learn a lot about Melchizedek over the coming year. So there'll be a lot of time to unpack some of this more fully. For now, though, I want to just walk us through some of the strange implications of this verse. Here, Yahweh has made an oath. This oath is so solemn that David adds the detail that this is something that the Father will never, ever change his mind on. It's eternal. All right? And it's a forever oath. What is the content of that oath? You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we already knew that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to be a king that comes from the lineage of David. We know that. But now we get this new information about how God sees the role of this king playing out. The king is also a priest. Now, this would hit the average Hebrew reader very, very strange. You see, the combination of priest and king has never really gone well together. Whenever some have tried to merge the two offices in Israel's history, usually God's judgment came as a result. Think of King Saul, who tried to offer sacrifices and God took away the kingdom from him. Think of Uzziah, who was smitten with leprosy in 2 Chronicles 26 because he tried to fulfill the office of priest while he was king. Both of these people were judged by God for attempting to do the job of priests while they were kings. So it's strange now then to hear that God has determined that the Messiah is both a priest and a king. This is strange to try and merge these two offices because they seemingly have opposing values. You see, the king's job is to rule rightly and justly. He's supposed to carry out justice. The priest's job is to reconcile people to God and to one another. The priest ministers grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and compassion. The king's job is to hold the line of righteousness and justice. 
These two jobs don't go well together, right? I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, until you see that Jesus is both king and priest, you cannot see Jesus as he is. If you only see him as king, you'll be tempted towards legalism, rule-keeping, and judgment. And if you only see him as priest, you'll be tempted toward compassion, service, and forgiveness. It is only when you see him as both king and priest that you can fully understand the fullness of Christ. You see, we need to see Jesus both as the righteous judge who upholds the perfect line of justice and doesn't let a single sin go undealt with. And we also need to see Jesus as the merciful high priest who will minister forgiveness and reconciliation for those that have sinned. Jesus does both. He does both. He deals with every single sin. No sin is unaccounted for. It is either accounted for at the cross or on the day of judgment. Those two places. But every sin is accounted for. He righteously rules. And yet, he is the one who turns the judgment upon himself for the sake of his people, that forgiveness and mercy and compassion might be meted out. He is both just and the justifier. Now, the second strange thing that is present in this small but packed verse is that Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He is a priest by the oath of Yahweh, from a different priestly order. He is a priest after the classification of this guy, Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek, you might say? I'm glad that you asked. Melchizedek has one small brief appearance in Genesis chapter 14. There's this short section that describes an interaction that Melchizedek has with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. The Genesis 14 account is brief, but it's densely packed with information about him. We find out that after Abraham defeated the confederation of kings who took his nephew Lot captive, Abraham met with this mysterious priest named Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness and who was also the king of Salem, which is an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And the name Salem means peace. So he's both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. It's an incredible picture. And he's a priest. Melchizedek was not merely a worshiper of the true God. He had the honored title of priest of the most high God. And the greatness of God expressed in the phrase most high God magnified the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood. He was not just an average pagan priest. He was a priest of the Most High God. Abraham uh, was blessed by Melchizedek, demonstrated his greatness over Abraham because the lesser is always blessed by the greater, right? Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, which is the tenth part of all. In this case, it was all the spoils of battle mentioned in Genesis 14.20. And there's no mention of his genealogy no mention of a father or mother for Melchizedek. He appears without any ge genealogy. He just sort of pops on the scene, and there's no family history, and there's nothing that comes after him. He just sort of hangs in the story of Genesis like this eternal high priest. 
Now, this oath in Psalm 110 is so important that the author of Hebrews refers to it five times. In his sermon to the Hebrews, he builds a case to show us that because Jesus is not from the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament form of priesthood, that Jesus serves as a better high priest. This priesthood is different because Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. So now you can see how Jesus can be both priest and king because he's not a Levitical priest. And it predates the giving of the Levitical law. Now this honor is not sought out, but it is declared by Yahweh's oath. His priesthood is eternal. It's without end. Just like this character who just sort of appears from out of nowhere with no genealogy. It's an eternal priesthood. This is signified in the oath by him saying, you will be a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He states that this is the exact reason that the resurrection is so amazing in the book of Hebrews. Because the high priest can never die. Jesus, as this Melchizedekian high priest, he died and then he came back to life. He's not dying again. He's there forever. Forever and ever. You're never going to have to get a new high priest. Because he's the permanent one. When we get into the book of Hebrews, I think you're going to be blown away by some of the statements that he makes. He says, because he can never die, he always lives to make intercession for his people. He's always there attentive to the needs of his people and tuned into them. But I want to draw your attention to this connection, though, between the Melchizedekian high priest and the people, the priesthood, this army of priests that are on the hillside here. Remember, that army of priests that appear like the dew, notice that they are dressed up like priests, just like the Messiah. In other words, something of the presence, power, and mission of this Messiah is seen in them. They are carrying out his presence in the world. They're standing in his authority. They're directed by his mission. They're sharing in his nature. The way they live is as though he were living through them. It's incredible. They are pictured as being directed by the Messiah for the Messiah's purposes. And more than that, they come in the shared nature of the Messiah. It's an incredible picture with so many implications for how we live. All the language about how we offer sacrifices, the fruit of our lips, giving praise to God. That is all priestly language. Do you see how the New Testament holds us up as a part of this royal priesthood? It's incredible. And as we close this psalm, we finally see the king and his awesome power in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings, shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. When Jesus is first seen in this psalm, at the beginning of the psalm, he's invited to sit down at the right hand of Yahweh. And now in this psalm, at the end of the psalm, he's pictured at, with Yahweh at his right hand. What is he there to do? What is Yahweh there to do at his right hand now? Verse 6 tells us, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is a time of judgment of the whole earth. All the nations will be held to account before the awesome power of the Messiah. This means that the whole earth will come under 
his authority. Notice there that it says that the chiefs or the leaders of those nations that were given to do the will and exercise the authority of Yahweh are now held accountable for their decisions. It's assumed in the scriptures that the chiefs or the rulers of the nations are given their authority from Yahweh to be used for Yahweh. This is confirmed in Romans 13 where Paul says that all authority is from God to do his will. The people of the earth were meant to know and follow Yahweh by living under examples of what his rule and reign might look like in their form of government, by the authority given to that government from God. And those people then come accountable to God for whether or not they live under his rule and reign. So this picture at the very end of this psalm is this picture of this great and terrible day of judgment where the leaders of those governments, those leaders of the nations, and the nations themselves, the people who comprise them, come under the authority of Yahweh. Now there is a ton of confusion in the church today about the role of faith in the political sphere. How do faith and government work in the life of a believer? It's helpful for me to ask some questions and then answer them to try and clarify how we might approach this complex issue. First question I want to ask you, why do we long for a government that rules justly and righteously? Why is that longing in us? Why is it when we see people make a bad call in D.C., we're like, Yuck! you know, we just like shake our fists, throw something at the TV, kick the dog on the way out. Why is it that we're like that? Why are we so passionate about things going awry in our country? Because we were created for the kingdom of God. That's why. That's why we get so upset. We were made for the kingdom of God. All the things that we hope for in a government that rules people justly finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. All forms of government that are meant to reflect the justice and compassion of the king of kings were created for that purpose to reflect who he is. And we long for that at the deepest part of our being. When we gripe about politics and injustice, our hearts are really expressing the longing of this psalm. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth the same way it's being done in heaven. Do it here, Lord. Our hearts are crying out for that. Okay, well, who gave the kingdoms of this earth their authority and to whom will they give an account? Answer right here in this psalm. Those chiefs, those kings, those rulers will be held accountable before Jesus on the day of judgment for how they exercise that rule. That's a heavy accountability. To whom much is given, much is required. Okay, next question. To which citizenship do we owe and pledge our first allegiance? Answer, the kingdom of God. You see, this is what put early Christians on a crash course with Rome. Because early Christians said, no, we have a first allegiance. We can't bow to Caesar because we only bow to Jesus. His authority extends over our whole lives. He owes us bodies. Or we owe him body, soul, and spirit. He has all of us. I, I, I'm navigating this dual citizenship thing by saying I'm here as a sojourner, I'm here as an exile, and I, I have to listen to King Jesus first, and then I live as a citizen to you second. That's how this works. 
You see, in the same way for us today, Christians in the U.S. will have to live with tension because the values of the kingdom of Christ will always have the seat of first importance in our lives. We cannot compromise and bear sin and say that it's not an offense to God. And at the same time, we will oppose the abuse of power, the oppression of people, the moral laxness of our culture. We'll also long for the poor to be cared for. We want to welcome the foreigner and the stranger among us. We want to help those who are in need. We care about the unborn and we care about the mother. We will never fully fit into one party in our system fully. We can't. The values of the kingdom trump all these other man-made systems. We're always in this place of holding to the values of the kingdom first. Because each party asks us to compromise the desires of our one true king and his kingdom, we can never fully commit to him. Okay, next question. What should the citizens of the kingdom do while living under the rule of those that do evil? They should live according to the way of Jesus and pray that God will change the heart of the rulers or replace them. Paul told Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So then how do we use our voice as citizens in this country? We use our voice to promote a better kingdom. We use our voice to promote a better kingdom, not bicker about politics. We use our voice to proclaim there is a better king and there is a better country and there's a better citizenship and I'm a part of it and you should be a part of it too. You see, when we sing these psalms, when we see the, sing this royal psalm, it gives words to express our longing for the kingdom of God to come in fullness. And this longing for the king to come and for the kingdom to be here this longing, that's worship in the eyes of God. That's the people of God crying out, saying, Oh God, how long will you wait? Be patient, bring more people, get, get more people into this priestly army. But God, we are so looking forward to that time when you come, when your will is being done here on earth the same way it's being done in heaven. God, all of my heart is longing for that moment. Amen? As the worship team comes up, would you pray with me? Father, your word is so refreshing of a perspective for us to hear. We need to be reminded. We need to have our eyes lifted. We need that window to peer into a different way of living in this world. May we live as sojourners and exiles, as a royal priesthood sent into the world to represent your kingdom. May we see our first citizenship as members of your kingdom, living out your desires, displaying your heart. God, give purpose and direction to our daily lives in the land in which you have scattered us. Use us for your glory. 
that people might get a taste of the king and of the kingdom. And we ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.